Bibles. We do have uh, extra Bibles back there if you need one. Uh, make sure you grab one as we want you to, to follow in the text along with us. And uh, if you have a cell phone on at this time, it would be great if you would put that on silent or turn it off. That would be super. Galatians chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5. Continuing our study through Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. And as we saw in our video this morning, and as we see on the nightly news, and as we are well aware of, our nation is currently at war militarily. And as followers of Jesus, we are also in a war spiritually. We are actually facing a war on two fronts. We are facing a foreign enemy, the the devil, who is seeking to destroy us. The Bible says that he is seeking to take your life and to destroy it. He's looking for whom he may devour. We are facing a domestic enemy as well. Our flesh, which is constantly warring with our new nature, the Spirit of God, as we saw last week in chapter 5. So it should not come as a shock to us. It shouldn't be a surprise for us when we see casualties amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are in a war. We're in a battle. In a perfect world, in a perfect church, in a perfect family, we would never give in to the flesh. That's going to happen. That's going to be in heaven. But right now, we are in a fallen world. In a perfect world, we would never give in to the flesh. We would always exhibit the fruits of the Spirit as we looked at last week. But we live in a fallen world, in a fallen fleshly body. And as a result, we fall prey and can fall prey to the things of this world. And here in our text, Paul is contrasting the way a legalistic person would deal with a person, a Christian, a brother or sister who's caught up in a sin, and the way a mature follower of Jesus would deal with that same person. Because that's what Galatians has been all about. How do you relate to God? Do you relate to God by your own efforts, your own works? That's legalism. Or do you relate to God through Jesus Christ, through His love, through His grace, knowing and understanding the freedom that you have in Christ. That means that you're a mature follower of Jesus. And those two things have been contrasted throughout this book. And now Paul compares and contrasts the way in which you would deal with a person who in the casualty of war has been caught up in a sin. It says there in verse 1, Brethren, if a person is overtaken in any trespass, if a person is overtaken, that word overtaken means to be caught up, sort of by surprise. This isn't talking about a person who deliberately goes out and just, you know, shakes their fist at God and says, I'm going to do what I want to do. This is more like a person who's just been caught up in something and and probably found out. That's what that word caught or overtaken would denote. Someone who's been 
found out, they, they were caught up in something and they want to get out of it, it's not a deliberate act of rebellion toward God. It's a person who desperately wants to get out of that situation. They, they want to get out of that fleshly tendency. They want to have freedom from that. And how do we deal with that person? The legalistic person would judge them, would exploit them, would use them as a way to feel better about themselves. How often do you see that? But the mature follower of Jesus, he would handle it differently. And we're going to answer three questions related to dealing with a person who is struggling in sin. Because it does happen. It will happen. And we want to know how to handle that properly. And Paul gives us some answers. Answers to three questions in dealing with a person caught up in sin. First of all, What do we do with such a person? Secondly, who is to come alongside such a person? And then thirdly, how do we minister to such a person? So let's answer the first question. What do we do with such a person? The text tells us, brethren, if any person is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. Restore. What do we do with such a person? We don't cast them out. We don't kick them while they're down. We don't judge them. We don't gossip about them. We don't use them as a way to feel better about ourselves. Because, oh, look what they did. I would never do that. We restore them. The mission of the person who seeks out a person who is in sin and caught up in sin should be to restore. Not to humiliate, not to teach them a lesson, not to get the juicy details so you can spread it around, but it's to restore. And that word restore, it holds the idea of setting a bone back in place that's been broken. And you know how painful a broken bone is. You you know how you desire a doctor to treat you when you go in with a broken bone. You don't want him to, you know, start banging away on it. You don't want him to, you know, tell you to jump up and down on your foot that's just been broken. Or, you know, when he tells you, can you flex your finger that's been broken? You're like, no, I can't. You know, it hurts a lot. And you just want it to be restored. You want it to be set back the way That it originally was. The word also holds the idea of mending nets. You remember when Jesus came across John and he said, follow me. John and his brother James, as they were there in the boat, what were they doing? They were mending nets and that same word restore is used there for mending it. It means to, to bring something that was broken or torn or tattered back to a place of usefulness. That's the heart that we should have when we seek out a person who's caught up in sin. It should be to restore them. Now, you can only do that if they want to be restored, if they want to be set back in place, if they want to be useful for God's kingdom again. And again, we're not talking about someone who's willfully rebelling against God. 
because obviously they don't want to be restored. But we're talking about somebody who just fell into something and they want to get out of it. They, they want to be free from it. And we're not to judge them. We're not to, to cast stones at them or to restore them. And how you restore someone is different for the situation, for the circumstance, for the person. But you'll know, you'll have God-given wisdom in what you're to do as you would come alongside that person to help them. God will show you. You're going to handle a person who is caught up in debt and has, you know, spent money that they didn't have and is in a situation where they have they owe all kinds of people money. You're going to handle that person differently than you would handle a person who's caught up in an adulterous relationship. You're going to handle a person differently who is spreading gossip and is lying about people and is slandering people's name differently than you would handle someone who maybe stole some money or took something that wasn't theirs. You see, the restoration process is different for the type of sin that you're in. person who is a glutton is going to be handled differently than a person who's caught up in sexual sin. That we, we have to use wisdom. We have to use insight. But the key is, is that we would have a heart for that person to restore them. And the second question that is asked is, who is to come alongside such a person? Paul answers that. It's not just everybody. We're not all called to it. He says... Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. You who are spiritual. Now, what does that mean? That sounds kind of, you know, religious. That sounds kind of, um, you know, high and mighty. What does that mean, those who are spiritual? Well, it ties back in to chapter 5. And what do we talk about in chapter 5? Well, Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so those who are spiritual are those who are walking in the Spirit. Those who are filled with the Spirit. Those who are exhibiting the fruits of the Spirit. And so if that's not true in my life, if that's not true in your life, we have no business restoring a person. Because what are we going to restore them to? Who are we going to lead them to? With what power are we going to do it? It's going to be in our power. We're going to lead them to ourselves or to some program. We need the Spirit of God. We need to be completely reliant on His Spirit. We should never launch out in any ministry without a complete dependence upon the power of God. That's why Jesus said in John 15, without me... You can do nothing. We might think, well, there's a lot of things I can do without the power of the Spirit. There was a lot of years where I didn't have the Spirit. The thing is, is that Jesus is talking about eternal things. Things that matter. Fruitful things. 
And certainly restoring a person, certainly ministry, is that fruitful thing. And without His power, you guys, we can't do it. Zerubbabel stood before a pile of rubble after he was called to go back into the land of Israel to rebuild the temple. After 70 years, the temple had been laid in waste. It was destroyed. It was just a pile of rocks. And here he goes back with a you know, handful of ragtag Jewish people that have spent their entire lives in Babylon. And they're supposed to go back and rebuild this temple. And he stands in front of this rubble and he is completely overwhelmed. And you know what? We stand over the rubble of people's lives. And we think, there's no way that I can help this person. There's no way I can offer anything to this person. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to take them. And you know what? All of those statements, all of those thoughts are right. And in fact, it's probably good that you feel that way. Because if you think, yeah, I've got the answers. I know what to do. I know what to say. I've got all the ducks in a row. I can take this person through these steps and they'll be perfect. If that's your mentality, you're launching out in your flesh. Like Zerubbabel, we should just say, I don't know what to do. And the Lord came to Zerubbabel and He said, it's not by might, it's not by your power, but it's by My Spirit. And we need the power of the Spirit. We need to be spiritual. This isn't some, you know, person who thinks they're better than everybody else. That's what we kind of think of when we hear the word spiritual, like a self-righteous person. No, this is a person who's filled with the Spirit, who understands their inability to do anything. And it ties in with chapter 5 of walking in the Spirit, being dependent and controlled by the Spirit. Those who are spiritual, they are the ones who would step up and come alongside that person and lead them back to Jesus and allow Jesus to restore that broken bone. Allow Jesus to mend those ripped nets and to place them back following Christ and useful to His kingdom. Well, a third question that we want to answer this morning is how do we minister to such a person? Because we've seen what we are to do and that's to restore them. The goal is restoration. And we've seen who is to do it. Those who are spiritual. But how do we do it? How, when we realize that God's calling us to come alongside that person, how are we to go about it? Well, Paul gives us three ways in which we're to minister to a person who's caught up in a sin. First of all, with gentleness. He says, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, you remember in chapter 5, with the fruits of the Spirit, one of them is gentleness. It means meekness. It's power under control. You remember when Nathan approached David about his sin? David had been hiding his sin for over a year. David had basically just been hardening his heart toward God. And he was ripped up inside over the fact that he had 
committed adultery with Bathsheba over the fact that in order to hide it, he killed her husband, Uriah. And Nathan came to him and he gave him a little story about a man who only owned one sheep and there was this other guy who owned a whole flock of sheep. And the guy that owned the whole flock invited some friends over to have a party. And instead of killing one of his lambs, he went and took the man with only one lamb. He went and stole his and slaughtered it and fed it to all his guests. And David was outraged. How could that happen in my kingdom? How could this go on? That man needs to be put to death. And Nathan said, David, you're the man. And I'm sure that at that moment, David realized he was caught. He realized he was found out. He realized it was over. And I'm sure there was a huge burden lifted off of him. Because probably if he could have found the strength, he would have said it, but he just couldn't find it within himself. He was hiding it. He didn't want to let people down. He didn't want to ruin his reputation. There was, I'm sure, good and and bad motivations for why he hid his sin. But in that instant, he realized it was over. But Nathan had approached him with gentleness. He told him a story. He, He led him to the truth in a very gentle way. He could have slammed him. He could have went to David and said, I know everything. I know that you're this. I know that you're a hypocrite. I know that you're a murderer. I know that you're an adulterer. But he didn't do that. He led him to the truth in a very gentle way. And you guys, when you come alongside someone to restore them, it needs to be with love. It needs to be with compassion. People can tell if you care about them or not. People can tell if you love them. And you know, if you've never had a relationship with that person, if you've never cared about them beforehand, it's probably going to be pretty tough for you to be the one to restore that person. We need to be pouring into people and and loving people beforehand. How many parents try to restore their kids after they've already gone wayward and they wonder why there's no response? And their kids say, well, you never wanted to have anything to do with me before. But now that I'm making you look bad, now all of a sudden you want to be my buddy and you want to take me to the ball game and you want to throw the football around and you want to do everything that that we never did. Well, now, Dad, I'm 18 and it's a little too late for that. You know, that's the truth. And the same in the church. You know, a person who comes to church and nobody ever talks to them and nobody has anything to do with them and nobody invites them over and nobody loves on them. And then we find out that person is, you know, caught up in a sin and, you know, okay, now the elders and now the pastor and now somebody's going to call them up. Well, hey, you never had anything to do with me before. We need to be loving on people beforehand, building relationships with people. And then when the opportunity arises, and I'm not making it sound like it's some great opportunity, but when the time comes that that person needs your help, they're going to be much more responsive. And however it is that you do it, it needs to be done in love and in compassion and with grace and a spirit of gentleness. 
Not bashing people over the head with the Bible. Not shredding them to bits with your words. But lovingly, compassionately restoring them in a spirit of gentleness. A second way in which we minister to a person is with humility. With humility. Look at verse 1 at the end. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So, you find out that this guy has been sleeping with someone other than his wife. You You find out that this lady has been stealing from her workplace. And you realize that the Lord's calling you to be the one to come alongside them. You realize that it's your responsibility. And so you go to them in a spirit of gentleness. But before you go, you need to consider your own flesh. It's just like Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7. Hey, do a little eye surgery. Make sure that you get the plank out of your own eye before you go around trying to get the speck out of other people's eye. You know, how ridiculous would it have been if when I was 17 and I lost my eye, had my eye surgeon come in and he had a big two-by-four shooting out of the side of his head. I would have been like, hey, bro, you got bigger problems than I do. You might want to go take care of that first. You know, I've, I've got this piece of metal in my eye and I'd really like to get it out, but why don't you take care of that log that's, you know, protruding from your head first? And that's the same. We need to consider ourselves. We need to look at our own heart. We need to say, God, am I guilty of that? Lord, is there anything you want to deal with me about? Lord, protect me as I go into this situation that I wouldn't fall into that same trap. And you see, it's with humility. It's with an understanding that you, yes, you and me, yes, me, could very well commit the same sin. See, I think Nathan went to David with a realization that he could be the one that had fallen into that sin. See, we should never think that there's anything beyond our reach. That there's anything beyond our flesh. And that keeps us from judging people. See, the reason why the church and the world have this ostracization The reason why there's such a gap in our society is because the church has begun to think that they aren't capable of committing the things that they see going on in the world anymore. And that's why we're out there picketing. And that's why we're out there yelling at people to repent. And that's why we're seeing zero fruit from any of that. What we need to do is say, you know what? I could be there. I could be the one strung out on drugs. I could be the one selling myself on the streets. I could be the one robbing banks. I could be the one that if there were certain decisions made in my life, it could be a serial killer. You see what I'm saying? You have to come to that place where you realize your flesh is wicked and nasty. And when you do, you don't pick it. You come alongside and you hug that person and you love that person and you restore that person. See? There's a huge difference with humility, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And then look at verses 3 and 4. 
For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, if you think that you're not capable of doing those things, you're, dece- you're deceived. You're living a lie. You need to understand your propensity towards sin. Paul says, but let each one, verse 4, examine his own work. And then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. Basically, what he's saying is don't compare yourself to other people. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul says that those that compare themselves are not wise. Why do we always do that? We want to compare ourselves with other people. Because they're a much better way to feel good about yourself. If I compare myself to Jesus, I don't feel so great about myself. But if I compare myself to this guy over here that's doing drugs or that's beating his wife or that's stealing money or you fill in the blank, then I think, wow, I, I, I don't do those things. But Paul says, don't compare yourself. Allow God to search your heart. And so it's with a Mindset of humility, it's with a heart of humility. Understanding that he who thinks he stands better take heed lest he fall, the Bible says. An unguarded strength is a double weakness. If you think you have strengths in your life, in other words, if you think there's things that you could never do, you better be careful because those are the areas you won't guard. Those are the areas you think you have whipped and it comes in from the back door you talk to people who are on fire for Jesus who were loving him with all of their hearts who were serving him and who got caught up in a sin and to a person they'll tell you I didn't intend to do that I didn't intend to end up drunk in some abandoned hotel with a prostitute I didn't intend to be strung out on drugs and to be now admitted into this rehabilitation facility. I didn't intend to be addicted to pornography, but here I am. And I didn't want it, but it's here. And I don't like it. And we have to have humility to understand that that could be us. And so it's with a spirit of gentleness, it's with a heart of humility, and it's also with an understanding of the need to come alongside that person in practicality. How do we minister to a person? With gentleness, with humility, and with practicality. Look what he says in verse 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so you've restored this person. You've helped this person. You've come alongside them and you've mended their nets, so to speak. But now you have this understanding that they need practical help as well. They need you to bear some burdens. Maybe in the midst of the sin that they got caught up in, they lost their job. And so now they need some help financially. 
maybe in the midst of this sin they got caught up in, their family wants to have nothing to do with them and, and you need to help them in that. Maybe they got kicked out of their home and they need a place to stay. So it's with practicality you bear a burden. You help them in very practical ways. Maybe it means that you give them rights. We've had people in our church who have lost their driver's license due to DUIs or reckless driving. And and we've had people that will take them places. They get called. Can you take me to the doctor and bend? Yeah. I'll do that. And that's restoring a person in very practical ways. And he says in verse 5, For each one shall bear his own load. Now those verses seem to be contradictory. Verse 2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now he's saying, Each one shall bear his own load. What What's Paul trying to communicate? Well, The word burden and load are two different words. In verse 2, when he says, bear one another's burdens, it's a military term. It means someone who's been shot, someone who's down, someone who needs you to come alongside and pick them up and carry them to safety. But in verse 5, it means a person, it speaks of a person who is just carrying their own pack. And that's their responsibility. And maybe I could illustrate it like this. Let's say a friend of yours, a person at church, gets into an auto accident due to the fact that they were drunk. It was their own fault. It was sin. They got caught up in it. And now their car's totaled. They just had liability insurance, and so they can't replace their car, and they need you to take their kids to school in the morning for a, a while until they can get back on their feet, until they can get their car again. Maybe they need you to take them to work, whatever. Take them to work. But here's the thing. You're taking their kids to school. You're bearing their burden. But you're not called to raise their kids. They need to carry their own load. You see the difference? You help them. You come alongside them. You bear their burden. But you're not to carry their load. There's certain responsibilities that each of us have. As men, we are called. The Bible is very clear to provide for our families. If we don't, we're worse than an unbeliever, the Bible says. That's pretty strong language. We're to care for our families. We're to provide for our families. That's a load that you need to bear. No one else can bear that for you or they're enabling you. The Bible says that as husbands, we need to love our wives. We need to love our kids. That's a load that no one else can bear. And so you get the Understanding there's a difference between carrying someone's burdens in a very practical way and bearing their load. And you've got to be able to distinguish that so that you don't go from helping a person to just enabling a person to continue doing what they're doing. And I want us to watch a video 
It's from the movie Flyboys. It's a great movie, by the way. And it illustrates for us what I mean by carrying someone's burdens. It illustrates for us, I think, in a very visual way, what it means to come alongside someone and help them when they're caught up in a sin. Let's go ahead and watch it. 